Great Patient One Chapter 19 Read by Achan Suchito and Nick Scott Our two pilgrims' walk through the forested hills of southern Bihar continues. Their route has now turned northwest, heading back towards the flatlands of the Ganges Plain and the border with Uttar Pradesh. The route is shown on the second map for this lunar cycle, which is available for download with this chapter. Chapter 19 Like a River Flowing Achen Suchito Now, with hindsight, this pilgrimage is coherent, told by a memory and a little red diary. Memory has distorted it. Explanations have been added and details left out as unnecessary to the main flow of the narrative. But the insecure open-endedness of the moment is gone. And that's all that it was really about. Writing this down places it all safely in the past as something now over, and a pattern gets discerned, traced and underlined. Actually, the written perspective is not any more distorted than the ones we had at the time, just different. From moment to moment, awareness forms perceptual patterns to describe the actual and proclaim the possible, and perception is Maya herself, subjective, biased, flowing like one of those Indian rivers, a mingling of so many currents and meanders, so much sparkle, ripple and wave, that the attention gets dazzled, only in the moment when the mind steps back in recognition is there a more knowing contemplation. Then there is only one pattern for all of it. Everything is changing, all patterns are void. Grasp them, and there's conflict. And yet, you can only experience that lucid emptiness through recognizing the current that you're in. January 25th. We were going through a river. My right leg throbbed with every step, so clambering along the uneven rocky bed of the Oranga, sandals off to protect the leather, soon aggravated that. My energy went flat about midway through the afternoon. I was trailing along, feeling like a donkey behind its master, attending to the inner whimper that was becoming a loyal companion on this journey. I didn't want to come this way. Why can't we walk along a nice, simple road? Why don't I have any say in where I'm going? Now we're stuck in this. We have to go on. We can't stop here. We can't turn back. Every step forward is painful. And there's an indefinite number of steps forward that have to be taken. This, or something like this, will continue for another three months. And, as a Buddhist monk... You're not supposed to mind. Every now and then we'd stop and sit on a rock. Then it was quite a pleasant day, sunny and warm. The water was flowing sweetly with the hushed forest wrapped around it, and a happy feeling came bubbling up. 
The rocks were like some natural sculpture, smooth, striated forms folded like strudel. I remember thinking the word nice. It felt good to give things definite words, and imparted a little flicker of self-confidence. I could feel gratitude and wonder peering through the fatigue at me. I could almost touch them, but not quite. Nick was making apologetic and comforting gestures, but I couldn't pick them up. I didn't quite have the space to be grand about it all, or the energy to fake a polite response. Nick Scott It was a shallow, swift-flowing river, full of boulders. Its form, and the way it twisted along the valley overhung by the occasional gnarled tree, reminded me of the rivers of the Cheviot Hills near my home. The sun felt strong, and for the first time that year we covered our heads to protect them from its glare. We stopped to bathe, scooping up the shallow water in our cups to pour over ourselves, and then went on, following the east bank, walking on a narrow strip of short turf. To begin with, it was easy walking, amidst an exhilarating landscape, and I congratulated myself on choosing to go this way. Then the turf gave way to rocky slopes with thorny scrub, and we were forced to wade the river. We crossed diagonally to a narrow sandbank on the other shore, our calves tugged downstream by the sunlight rippled water, and our feet disturbing the patterns created in the sand by the current. Every so often the river spilled over outcrops of ancient-looking rock, creating the slightest of waterfalls, and as a result the river was slowly dropping into a gorge. It was not long before another twist of the river brought it hard up against the valley side, and we had to cross again to another narrow sandbank. As we went on, and the gorge became more pronounced, our crossings became more frequent. I didn't mind. It was the kind of wilderness walking I enjoyed. But I could tell that Ajahn Suchito was getting irritated. This wasn't the kind of terrain in which he could get into a steady, absorbed rhythm. With each crossing, my responsibility for us being there began to weigh more heavily, and my heart sank as we had to struggle yet again through the water. So I stopped enjoying the walking, and I began to wish I'd chosen the small road to Ketchki. Eventually I even tried climbing the side of the valley, but that did no good, as the rolling dry landscape was covered in thorny scrub. The animal trail we found winding through it only led back to the river. I now peered ahead as we rounded each bend of the river, hoping for a sight of the railway bridge that crossed just before Ketchki. When at last it appeared, I pointed it out with relief to Ajahn Sujita. His mood lightened, and for the last part of the walk, we were both able to appreciate the river again. After the bridge, the walking by the river got easier, and we reached the village just before sunset. The rest house was set amid streets and looked out over the merging of the two rivers. It was spacious and clean, but our fatigue from the hard walk made us impatient with the usual initial confusion with the Chokidar. 
as we asked for tea several times. But by the time it did come, we had mellowed. The day was ending, and we were sitting in chairs looking out on the meeting of the two rivers. We put the teapot on a small table between us. The water from the Oranga was being swept northwards in the much larger North Coal, and we had a view down it to distant hills. Wire-tailed swallows hawked over the water, and a bat came flitting past the corner of the house. Things were never going to be perfect. The day had been good enough. My enthusiasm for walking by rivers had been checked, though. The next day, having crossed the high and narrow bridge that carried both a single-track railway and the road to Dalton Gunge, we headed north on the road. After a few miles, however, we had to cut across to the river anyway, as I wanted to take a small track on the far shore that went northwest, avoiding Dalton Gunge and so saving us a few miles. The North Coal was just as shallow as the Oranga, but much wider, with numerous sandbanks created by the ever-dividing and meandering waters. This time we both enjoyed wading across, stopping to look down at the shimmering light on the water rushing by. I had my binoculars out. On every stretch of dry sand there were spur-winged lapwings, making alarm calls at our approach. And then on one I spotted a scavenger vulture, picking at the remains of something. Then I waded on, the water sparkling with the morning sun, the splashing of my feet echoing the cries of the lapwing as I hurried to catch Ajahn Suchito. Ajahn Suchito Running across the tract that extends north and west from Betla to Varanasi are three rivers, North Curl, Son, and Ganges. There's not much else for a pilgrim to aim for. You can't work up much passion to arrive at Chainpur, Garawa, or Panchadumar. Chikni nor Garanchakya will never make it into the atlas of world religions. Only when finally at Ramnagar, Rama's city, standing on the right bank of holy Ganja, can the mind look over to Varanasi and play with human images of the divine. But there are the rivers, and any river in India is worthy of a pilgrimage. Often they are as changeable as any goddess. They can swell full and fertile, and carrying the stuff of mountains in their bellies, open over the land to give life to the crops. In another time they revert to being a series of streamlets chasing each other around a wide bed of sandbanks. To me they are at their most delightful when running a finger joint deep over beds of pebbles in a million giggling wavelengths. Then when they have just a trace of water, they are so full of light, so much a matter of flow in so many changing currents, that they are like the heart's awareness. Like pilgrims themselves, they bear irresistibly onwards through the world, growing mighty as they empty themselves into a flow that is vaster still. So Oranga flows into North Curl, North Curl to Son, and Son to Ganges, the one who is called the mother of the world. And the farther you go, 
the more mud you can carry. On the 26th of January we left Ketchki. Nick had planned a route that basically swung north and west of Varanasi. The aim was to get to Varanasi by the end of the first week of February while the weather was still cool. That would mean we could avoid crossing the crowded plains to the north of the Ganges in the hotter months of March and April. We had decided to abandon walking for a part of that route in order to spend a longer time at Savati, the site of the famous Jetavana monastery where the Buddha himself had spent many range retreats. There we could meditate and recoup before heading into Nepal. As far as ideas go, all this made sense. However, the immediate route across the sparsely populated uplands that the river cut through was uncertain. Lines of communication headed down the river valleys, but to go that way would have taken too long, and that would have taken us long highways and through towns. And this time, we were going to take it quiet and take it easy. So we had to go against the natural flow of roads, rivers and rail and head north and west over blank areas in the map. Nick, of course, saw no problem. After crossing the river, we made our way through the fields to Chainpur, a wonderful temple to Jagannath. But food was hard to come by. We moved on through the afternoon and found a road going west towards Garawa. Roads meant easier walking, but more people, questions and occasional glasses of tea, a peopled landscape. All part of the trip, as far as I was concerned, so when late in the afternoon we were summoned into a chai stall by a forest officer in his uniform, who insisted that we stop in his village for the night, as usual, this was a very dangerous area and it is not safe to sleep outside. It seemed a fair enough occasion to meet and be with the people who were part of this land. The village itself, off the road and across the fields, was just a cluster of dwellings surrounded by cultivated land. There were no streets or public buildings, shops or temples. The dwellings were of different sizes, the larger ones consisting of a long, single-storey house with a thatched roof and its own yard. The whole was enclosed by a wall with a doorway in it. Outside our host's doorway, chairs were drawn up. We were given a glass of tea, and the family came out and gathered around us. Some were mature women, probably the wife and the mother, and there were a cluster of smiling boys, some in their teens, and girls. About twelve of them shared the house. We were then taken to a larger house, that of the headman, the Mukia, where a larger congregation of people were gathered outside. A few chairs and an old man welcomed us, and more tea. He spoke excellent English, and attended by most of the men and boys of the village, talked on religious matters. He had been a railway worker in his working life, and was still dressed in his railway worker's uniform, which didn't seem to have prevented him from reading Vedanta philosophy, Patanjali's Yoga Sutra, the Koran, the Bhagavad Gita and the Bible. He had some familiarity with Buddhism, at least the theory of it. Nick tried to get some of the villagers to ask questions using one of the English-speaking men as a translator. Despite his efforts, the response to our presence was by and large wordless. 
There were a few questions of the where-do-you-live variety. Most people were content to stand or squat for a couple of hours, wrapped in contemplation. We were taken into the house to rest. My expectations of a family scene disappeared. The front door opened onto a simple hall lit by an oil lamp where the men slept. In one side there was another door that must have opened into the women's quarters and the kitchen. The men spread out blankets on the plank beds. Food was offered. We sat in meditation to indicate that the time of social contact had come to an end. They watched for a while. Then some men left and others lay down on their beds dressed as they were with a blanket pulled over them. Sleep was optional. There were fragments of conversation. An incoherent radio was trying to be sociable. It stayed like that all night, with people occasionally getting up and stumbling around in the dim lamplight. It was 3.15 in the morning by Nick's clock when I finally sat up. People would get up occasionally and go out. Some would return to bed. A man was fiddling with the radio and extracting snippets of English from it. By 5.30 it was time to make a move. Someone near my bed helped me with the door. It was just light. Stars were paling before the roosters crowing and the air was raw. I inhaled some of the cold dawn air in an attempt to clear my head, then went inside to get Nick moving. I thought that might initiate an offer of tea, but the consciousness of the room was not geared to that yet. Not for the first time, my mind homed in on the image of Mr. Upadhyay in Clark's Hotel, Varanasi, smiling behind a breakfast table. But here, there wasn't even anybody to say goodbye to. One of the men who was going to work offered to guide us to the track that led to Garawa, and as we made our way across the fields, thick-headed and with grit in our throats, he suddenly began expressing his admiration for meditation practice and asking questions. To him, meditation was like looking at the open sky. Caught off balance, I could only come up with a gruff comment that it would probably change. Nick Scott. Now it was me that was upset by the choices of my partner. I'd been looking forward to sleeping outside that night. At last we were in open countryside where we wouldn't have to hide away as we had when crossing the Ganges Plain. The nights weren't so cold as the previous weeks and there was no sign of rain. But instead we'd had a poor night's sleep surrounded by people. When we reached the main track to Garwa, it dropped and forded a stream. We splashed through it, and on the far bank sat and rested. It was a lovely spot. The stream gurgled over rocks, then went on between earth banks to flow away beneath overhanging trees and shrubs. But I couldn't simply enjoy it, as I was thinking how good a campsite it would have made. There was no one about, and only one distant hut. As we went on up the track, 
an old lady and young boy emerged from that hut. They were poor. She was dressed in a dirty and tattered sari. They offered some uncooked rice. Ajahn Suchito tried to explain we couldn't cook it. But when they finally understood, they just offered to get a pot and water. She was a sweet old woman with a nearly toothless grin. But we didn't want to start making fires and boiling water. By the time all that was done, it would have been past the time we could eat. Ajahn Suchito accepted instead some water and drank that, and then we tried to go on. I wanted to get somewhere we could eat in this empty landscape before it was too late. But the young lad kept trying to talk to us. Eventually I just pushed on up the track and Ajahn Suchito followed me. After a short while the lad reappeared running after us. He brought a small paper bag of boiled sweets with him. It was probably all they had that they could give us. We did get to eat that day at a small village. It wasn't a very satisfactory meal. Just a series of snacks, some given and some bought by me. But the village was near enough that we could have allowed more time to the poor peasant family. They deserved it. But I was often like that in those situations, wanting to get on to the next thing I had planned in my head. For the rest of the day we were walking across an undulating dry plain with few trees. Much of it was cultivated, but the soils looked very poor, a cracked and weathered red earth, and the houses and few villages were far in between. In the distance were forested hills. That night we got to sleep outside at last, under a lonely tree on the slope of a hill rising to a crag. We had spotted it from the railway we were now walking beside. It was a beautiful but desolate landscape, with the nearest houses far enough away that I could light a fire and brew tea for the first time. We also stopped early enough to be able to sit watching the light fade from the sky and the night begin. We chatted over tea in that relaxed end-of-the-day way that I'd so missed when crossing the crowded Ganges Plain. Ajahn Suchito spoke of his relationship with his father and about memories of him when he was a boy. His father ran a refrigeration business with a big workshop full of men working on machines. His older brother used to help, but Ajahn Suchito was too young and also, I suspect, too impractical. They would get impatient with him and take his job away to do it themselves. That made him feel inadequate and rejected. The times he did enjoy being with his father was when they went fishing together. Then they were alone on the riverbank, surrounded by the beauty of the countryside. But then he began to feel bad about harming the fish. His father told him that if they put them back it was all right. But even when he accepted that, he still had problems with the worms. Surely they couldn't be indifferent to being speared on a hook. So he began fishing without them. And then, after a while of being unhappy about the occasional fish he still caught, he gave up using a hook. From then on, he was sitting there with a rod and line, with nothing on the end and no chance of catching anything, perfectly happy, just enjoying being with his father by the river. I was really charmed by that tale. 
It was good to be able to sit and chat like that. Later we finished the evening in meditation under the stars. Then we each found a spot under the shelter of the tree, so to avoid the morning's dew, and lay down to sleep. During the night we heard wild hogs passing, on their way down to raid the fields of the nearby village. It was a cold night, and we were only just warm enough in our thin sleeping bags, even with all our clothes on. So we stopped at dawn for hot tea at a chai stall next to Merrill Graham Railway Station, a one-platform and small shed affair just along the line. The chai waller had just lit his fire, and we sat round it warming our hands as he brought the water to the boil. As we were his first customers of the day, he honoured the gods with my preferred banknote, holding it in Angeli and then waving it through the fire. We spent that morning walking by the railway again. The single track avoided climbing in this dry rolling landscape by slight cuttings and gentle embankments, and just occasionally altering course to avoid one of the rocky crags that dotted the skyline. Just one train roared past us, belting out steam and trailing carriages with a mural of bright faces before we stopped for alms food at a village that backed onto the line. From there, we left the railway to take the Panchadama Road onto slightly higher ground covered in scrub, where we camped that night. The next day, as we came over the bleak grey hills, the Somme Valley was laid out before us. It was surprisingly empty. The river Son in the distance was much larger than I had expected, far bigger than the North Coal. But what was the greatest surprise was the enormous cliffs on its far side. They ran east and west to the horizon, with the river at their base, and they were at least a thousand feet high. We could see Panchadamar down by the river. It was hardly bigger than a village, and was dwarfed by this mighty landscape. Behind me, a postman dismounted from his old black bicycle to walk beside Ajun Suchito. He carried the daily post from the Dalton Gange train in a flat canvas bag over his shoulder. In Panchadamar, when we got there, he bought us tea in a small chai shop, which in no time was surrounded by so many curious locals that we lost sight of the sky. A few of them then accompanied us as far as the path to the ferry, and then they left us to tramp alone across a wide expanse of sand to the river. I had been reflecting that day on the significance of our crossing the sun. To the west, the river was the Bihar state boundary, and in crossing it, and then turning left, we would be leaving India's poorest and most lawless state for the more orderly Uttar Pradesh. The significance seemed more than that, though. The following night was the full moon, and that was precisely halfway through our six months of pilgrimage. We had actually managed to get halfway, despite the robbery and all the other difficulties. Not only that, but we had learned from it, and now the pilgrimage seemed to be flowing more like the river. We were starting to take things in our stride, and perhaps the next three months were going to be easier than the last three. The ferry was a large rowing boat, 
with two men at the oars, waiting at the shore. We crossed for a rupee each with three local passengers. The two of us sat in the back, me with my hand trailing in the water, taking it all in. The wide river, the woodland on the further shore, with the vast cliffs rising from behind it, and Ajahn Suchito murmuring a mantra, looking down at the light playing on the water as it flowed by. Achen Suchito. In general, things got lonelier and drier as we went north. The bleakness and the cold nights ground an edge on the mind. Obtaining food required a sharper approach. The first day out of Garwa, I had decided to ask directly for the mukia of the village and rely on his duty as host to get us a meal. It worked well in the small community that was farming a stretch of fertile land near the railway line. But the next day, we were in another barren area. Described on the map as protected forest, the hills were like slag heaps of grey grit without even a vestige of thorn scrub on them. The ravaged land was hard and uninviting. We went on hungrily to Panchadumar in the sandy basin of the Sorn ferried over and spent another cold night around a fire under the glittering stars. These were the days when, long before dawn, the hard earth and damp was getting us up to shudder around a fire with eyes streaming from the smoke and be warmed back to flexibility. The sunrise was very welcome, and as light came up on that last morning in Bihar, Something felt good. My head hurt and my body ached. My right leg was painful, but at least no worse. And the side of the right foot had split open. I'd stuck it together with plasters, but what the sand, grit and river sown had done to that wasn't worth looking at. But none of this seemed to be a problem. The simplicity of life in the wilds put the mind into a very accepting state. And today would be easy. We decided to walk only as far as the road that led north, maybe ten kilometres all in all. Then we'd be fresh for the all-night sitting, and there'd probably be a good spot on a hill for meditation. In this area it looked like it would be easy to find places to stop. Villages were few, there was no sign of agriculture on the narrow terrace of land under the scarp, and our path was a silent dirt track leading out of Bihar. Everything seems possible on a fresh sunny morning. The morning was radiant. A cobalt sky shone down on dry forest, sun-bleached grasses with long feathery seed heads and stands of pale yellow bamboo. The Sown River on our right was brown and brawny like the Gandak, pouring down to the Ganges with vigour. It carried so much silt in its purposeful stride it was like molten chocolate. You're in UP now, said a man on a motorbike an hour or so's walk due west. UP is a rich state. There will be no problem getting food. Just ask anybody. But a good bhikkhu shouldn't ask for anything. 
Soon we came across a large, single-storey house with a yard and a few men sitting round in it. Just outside was a smooth rock with a swatch of red paint on it that a tall bamboo shoot stood over bearing a scrap of cloth like a flag. The house shrine. So we sat near that. And one of the men came out to greet us in an indistinct dialect. He asked what we could do for us. I asked for water. He returned with two beakers and some juggery sugar. I explained that we were pilgrims, and he nodded. That I was a disciple of the Lord Buddha. That we were walking on foot, and had walked nine hundred kilometres from Nepal. I thought that would do it. We made friendly noises and went back to the house. Things were moving slowly. We heard them talking about rice. Then a couple of plates came out. As the sun moved, they beckoned us into the shade and brought out a little dish of curd. But as an hour went by, nothing more seemed to be happening. Of all patterns, the one that we read into human actions is the most deceptive. We chanted the Metta Sutta anyway. Finally, one of the men came up and started talking about food. I listened carefully. What was he saying? But at the mention of food, Nick burst in, nodding vigorously. Acha! Acha! I grimaced. That was the wrong answer. What the man had just said was, Have you eaten already? Do you have your meal with you? And Nick had just said yes. Remind me to keep my mouth shut in future, Bunty, said Nick, as we munched some biscuits and dried rice flakes in a forest glade ten minutes' walk from the house where he'd just refused the meal. It wasn't great fare, but it filled a hole. Although we were a bit low on nourishment, we had little more to do that day. It wasn't far to Chadney, where the map showed a broad road cutting through the scarp, We'd find a nice place to camp by the middle of the afternoon. But we should have known by now there's nothing more uncertain than an Indian map, at least one of an uninhabited area. We walked around the little hamlet of Chadney, went past it, then retraced our steps along the river bank. No road. The scarp rose up like a wall over a thousand feet high. Although we felt washed out, it would be better to scale it that day rather than after an all-night vigil. We found a young man herding a few cows laden with packs up a drover's trail. He said it went towards Soman on the other side of the scarp. So we set to it, struggled and gasped to the top, turning from the path to a rocky summit thirteen hundred feet above the plateau. The black rock was strewn with yellow leaves from a scattering of thorny trees. Gnarled, silvery trunks reached into the deepening sky. Bleached bamboo and tall, whitened grasses stuck up through scraps of soil. And it was all very quiet. I had enough momentum left to unroll my mat and sleeping bag and flake out on level of rock. It was probably far enough from an edge if I rolled over. 
but that time I was past caring. When I woke up, it was dark, but pale smoke and a nearby glow indicate that Nick was making tea. He was at his best in the wilds in the evening. Out would come the round-bottomed pot that he bought in Chatra, then he'd silently build a ring of stones and gather twigs and leaves, get a fire going and put water on. I'd start searching for fallen branches and set a good supply near him. Then I'd build a shrine out of rocks, overlooking a view, and near enough to the fire for us to stay warm. And then all was ready. Set up Mahakanti. That night opened into silent simplicity. The forested hills dissolved to darkness and merged into the sky. The soul snaked below us, glowing in its own power and garlanded with pale sandbanks. I could see it issuing from the misty curve of the horizon and steadily carving its way through the hill mass. In all those hundreds of square kilometres of land, only three tiny pricks of light spoke up, and they soon ceased. Then there was only our candle to echo the blazing moon, and aloneness gathers around the mind, and resting in humility. Nick, wrapped in his beard, a sleeping bag and wisps of smoke, made some tea at midnight and handing over a crumbling rock of jaggery to munch on. It was story time. We got to talking about our travels, our attempts to encompass the world. Nick had got as far as Australia in his overland trail and had spent a year there picking up odd jobs and moving round. One time he was hitchhiking across the Nullarbor Plain, the huge flat coastal desert between Adelaide and Perth. The man who picked him up asked him to take the wheel for a while at the end of the day. Nick didn't have a licence or any experience of driving. But that didn't matter. Of course you can drive, his companion asserted. Everyone can drive. On the Nullarbor Plain there's nothing much to it. A long, straight highway with no towns, no junctions and no traffic. Even if you fall asleep at the wheel, you're unlikely to come to any harm. Nick's host had an esky, an icebox, in the back, from which he poured cans of beer to lubricate the journey. That unchanging landscape got dull, so he lifted over his rifle too. Always liked to shoot a few roos. Dusk was the best time to take pot shots at the wildlife. My ethically-minded friend was in a dilemma. He didn't want the animals to be harmed, but also didn't want to be dumped out on a Nullarbor plain a thousand miles from anywhere. So I drove along, watching out for kangaroos just beyond our lights, and if I saw one I'd distract him with a question. Are you married? So he wouldn't see it until the last moment. Then as he rushed to take a shot through the side window, i give the steering wheel a twitch. He didn't see what I was doing. He had quite a few beers by then. And there'd be a bang! Mr. Bugger! <laughs> Nick was in great form. We went all round Australia that night on the floor of his humour and delight. It stopped about two o'clock in the morning. The glaring moon was still inviting us to presence. 
Australia, as well as India, collapsed back into the moment. The silence was singing in the glory of the moonlight. By comparison, morning chanting at 3.30 was a feeble dirge. After that, we flopped out for a couple of hours before day got us going again. And so, onwards, tottering on across the plateau, Pipra, Samaria, just a trace of a trail to walk along and food even harder to come by. My mind sometimes streaming out into the wilderness, sometimes eddying with fatigue, daydreams or bubbling with irritation would finally empty into numbness by the end of the day. But then, as it touched the night's stillness, before the sweet taste of oblivion, feel a deep underswell. Presence. Nick Scott We spent the next night by a canal on the veranda of a locked inspection bungalow. The next morning when I went down to wash I disturbed a little green heron stalking a fish in the reeds. It flew up into a nearby tree and sat there watching me while trying, quite successfully, to look like part of the vegetation. The other bird I particularly recall from this part of the pilgrimage we found later that same morning. We'd crossed the canal and were climbing again through a desolate scrubland. We were getting lost and hearing the distant drone of a diesel pump to the right, we went that way in the hope of finding a village and some directions. We didn't find anyone and the pump seemed to stop. But then there was another in the distance, so we headed for that. But then that stopped too. We never, in fact, found anyone. The pumps always kept stopping before we got to them. Eventually, I realised that the diesel pumps must be barbets. The barbet is a chunky green bird related to the woodpecker that sits in the clefts of tree branches and drones for much of the day. Instead of the chisel-like beaks of woodpeckers, barbets have a rather heavy but otherwise ordinary-looking beak, which is surrounded by a ring of long hairs that no one has yet found an explanation for. We were to hear that call over and again for the next few days, a strange reminder of human activity in that empty landscape of scrub through which the packhorse trails meandered and braided like a river. Between the dry lands were two wide valleys, irrigated by dams and canals like the one we'd slept beside. Water was very important in this landscape. Where they had it, in the valleys, the land was turned into fertile flat oases of fresh green wheat, checkered with coloured flowering patches of blue flags, yellow rape, and white chickpeas. The fields were dotted with small thatch shelters and scarecrows made from a cross of wood, an old shirt and a hat. And every so often, there were villages of orange clay houses. The landscape looked so beautiful after the dry hills. 
The speckled colours gave it the look of an impressionist painting of Provence at the turn of last century. The dry lands had their own beauty, though, a haunting and desolate emptiness in which just a few poor peasants eked out a living. I recall one old couple sitting by their house. Ajahn Suchito asked for water for our bottles. The old man was proud to be able to offer it, but the old woman looked peeved. It would have been her that had carried it from the distant well I could now see at the bottom of the hill. That evening we camped on the edge of the scrubland, looking down into a valley lit from behind by the moon. Before us the lights of a village glimmered through a thin mist covering the lower land. Out of the mist also came the echo of music, the beating of drums, the wail of other instruments, and the low hubbub of lots of distant voices. It sounded like they were having a party, perhaps a wedding, as with the full moon of February we were now in the traditional month for marriage. The party went on through the night and was still going, if a bit more fitfully, as we walked down in the early morning. We made for the house it was coming from in the hope they might offer us breakfast. Inside a compound were the smouldering embers of several fires, and squatting and lounging around them were the human remnants of the all-night boogie in a smashed stupor. Someone was still hitting a drum, a musician was playing an instrument like a large violin, while others jangled bells, and a man dressed as a woman shuffled about in a dazed dance. Around the fire squatted small groups of men, or of women with young children sitting beside them. Some of the men were passing around a chillum, sucking in turn at the cupped base to make the ganja and tobacco glow red. They were just about capable of welcoming us in and having us sit down, but that was as far as it went. We did get some water when we asked, but they were far too out of it to think of offering us anything to eat. So we went on, overtaking two men making their way unsteadily across the fields on their way to tend their stock. The farming life has to go on, and that, I supposed, is why they have their weddings during the night. The following evening we experienced again a taste of the hullabaloo of humanity that lay ahead in the Ganges plain. We'd been through the wide, fertile valley of Nolgar that day, and along a nearly empty but very good road through more dry forest, the last before the plains. In the late afternoon the road took us beside the shore of the vast Chandra Prabha Reservoir. We stopped to bathe and then followed the shore, rounding a headland to disturb a flock of bar-headed geese, grey and black with beautiful markings of zigzagging black and white along the trailing edge of their wings as they took flight. The blue water shimmered in the late afternoon sun with the geese honking as they flew off across it. At the head of the reservoir was a dam, and beside it was a very pucker inspection bungalow, a modern two-storey affair. It was empty and looked little used, but the Chokidar said we could stay for 40 rupees bakshish. After we had settled in, 
we sat on the veranda to watch the sun set over the water, sipping flowery lemon tea, the trees in the foreground black and swaying gently against the reddening horizon. The evening star twinkled in the sky, and it seemed as if we were in a world with only us, the Chokidar and his dog. It was an exquisite moment. But then there was the sound of a motor, and a large coach pulled into the car park. As the coach stopped, a loudspeaker on the roof started blaring out pop music, and its doors disgorged an enormous amount of schoolchildren. They'd been to see the nearby waterfall, and now they were here to see the dam. They trooped off, but it wasn't long before they were back again, and milling about the inspection bungalow, shouting to each other above the noise of the music, clapping and singing along. Achan Suchito February 3rd Before dawn we went together to the waterfall. We sat up on the viewing platform as light came to the sky, our small shrine before us, and beyond that the roaring water. In the moonlight, in the clarity of meditation, the Rajdari Falls were like an explosion of snow as the river threw itself into emptiness. The roar, overwhelming, froze my attention. Then the dawn peacocks greeted us, calling from the forest and launching themselves in blue and silver arcs across the gorge. Our returning footsteps followed the river in its delight to be flowing on, sparkling on over red sandstone, to a land of gnarled shrubs and crinkled leaves that crunched underfoot. And for that timeless moment, the world was beautiful, unremembered, indestructible. But back to the cutting edge. Now it was Nick's sandals. The soles kept peeling off. So, as we walked along, we would be accompanied by their slap, Slap. Whenever we arrived at a small town, his dharma would be to seek out a street cobbler, point out the soul, and initiate the process of the cobbler heating up an ancient glue pot over a burner, spreading the glue on with a simple spatula, or even simpler finger, then hammering soul back to upper. Satisfied, and with Nick's assertion that this had finally fixed it, we would then proceed with confidence but never for more than half a day before the slapping, her first subdued as a butler's cough, then emphatic as a judge, informed us that all compounded things are impermanent. It wasn't so much the slap-slap accompanying our footsteps, they were just a few ripples in attention, but there was a further ideological undertow. Spending time fixing these is pointless. Why doesn't he see it? Then the trickle of the irritation of the sandals became connected to larger, more powerful outflows. Now it was a person rather than a pair of sandals. I would be left with the bags to hang out somewhere with a donkey-tied-to-a-post feeling, 
while Nick rushed off to fix the sandals and check things out. He'd return an hour later, sometimes with a snack and a scrap of paper, and generally with a plan. There'd be possibilities, probabilities, place names and times, a route and all that, present expectations masquerading as future certainties. Then we would scramble to get to some place by such and such a time, only to spend another hour dithering around before plunging off again. Nick's plans meant responsibilities for both of us, and I had to take care of his details, keep an eye on his possessions when he broke camp, pick up the map when he wandered off to look at some bird. He even left his money belt containing both our passport beside the son after he stopped to relieve himself. Only my inquiring after it had turned us back to find it. He blithely shrugged all this off, but I couldn't see why I had to attend to his stuff when I had enough to do to keep myself together, and so on. And where was all this going? To Baranas. Baranasi was an easy reply we'd throw back as we moved towards the Ganges and into a peopled landscape again. They'd understand and brighten up. Baranas, Atya! A real pilgrim's destination. But enough of this show. I was only interested in a place where destinations could come to an end. We stopped the night beside the Karamnasa River with a Mughal-style shrine visible in the distance. There was no tree cover and the hard, cold night got us off early to pay our respects. We crossed the large dam on numb legs and offered incense outside the entrance to the tomb itself. Inside, bent double over a copy of the Koran, from which he was reciting verses, the tomb's custodian kept the vigil as he rocked to and fro, a vigil that looked a century old at least. Nick put some money in a bowl, and without breaking off from his recitation, the chanter beckoned us in to sit by the sarcophagus, draped in crimson cloth, embroidered with silver Arabic lettering, Latif Shah, peace be on him, received our dumb homage while the incense smoke and chanting filled the tomb. And who was Latif Shah? But then it was on again, past the nearby museum with all its information. Cold and damp from the night, we went on without stopping. We needed tea, warmth, food. It wasn't until we were in a chai shop in nearby Chakya that my mind became workable again. Blessed tea! The chai shop was large, tidy and clean. It must have been a Muslim establishment, as there were private booths for women to chat in. We just sat there in silence, taking it in. On the wall in front of us was a poster of two cheetahs with the words In quietness and in confidence shall be your strength. Maybe that was one of Latif Shah's sayings. May peace be on him. Tranquil depths look beautiful, but I wonder whether I could get through the surf to reach them.
Nick Scott. We crossed the river in the morning to get to the tomb and then crossed back again when we left. Looking back now, there seemed to be a lot of rivers on this part of the journey and a lot of water. Strange, because another strong impression is of the dryness of much of the landscape. By the tomb, though, we were back on the verdant Ganges plain. There were still outcrops of small hills around us, but we were now walking across deep alluvial soils again. The silt-derived soil was being farmed intensely everywhere, but it was also being used in other ways. We passed several tall chimneys, clustered about each were small family industries producing bricks. Each family had a mud hut where they lived and a hole in the earth where they toiled. Parents and children, dressed in ragged clothes, stained with the soil they were digging, mixed the earth with water to make mud, which they then formed into bricks using small wooden blocks. Everywhere were neat rows of wet bricks, drying in the sun before being taken to the chimneys for firing. Then, at a crossroads, we passed potters working the same clay. They turned their wheels using a stick inserted in a small hole on the margin, turning them faster and faster until they were spinning around, then drawing out a complete pot before the rumbling momentum of the heavy stone wheel had ground to a stop. But they didn't make the crude clay thimbles we were later served tea in at a chai stall. These were formed by hand, and they were tossed onto a pile of broken clay after being used only once, to return to that earth. I'd not been looking forward to returning to the plains, but now we were there, I found it surprisingly agreeable. This was partially because we'd learnt to use small byways and footpaths, and also because the weather was now more benign. But it was also because our pilgrimage was now flowing in a way it never had before the hills. There we had finally adapted to each other and the land we were passing through, so it was no longer such a grinding experience. Now, carried along by the pilgrimage, I was able to easily put aside the day's various setbacks and irritations. Our journey had become more of a devotional experience than an attempt at getting anywhere. As part of my growing appreciation of devotion, the chanting we were doing was beginning to mean something to me. As well as the daily salutation to our small crooked Buddha image, we were also using several of the Buddhist chants of reflection. There was the metta chant on the quality of loving-kindness, which we recited in either English or Pali. During our walk through the hills, I'd been trying to learn the Pali version, Ajahn Suchito had written out the forty short lines for me on a piece of paper, and as we walked along, I'd try repeating it over in my head. Despite a month of this, I still hadn't memorised it. It was fine when following Ajahn Suchito's lead, but if he stopped mid-line, which he did occasionally to see how I was getting on, I would grind to a halt by the next. He was amazed. He could see I was trying... I was always getting the scrappy piece of paper out to read while we walked, but I was finding it so hard. In his memory, he had at least a hundred Pali chants 
most much longer than the one I was trying to learn, as well as the entire Patimoka, the rules of training, 5,000 lines long. The chant that meant the most to me was the one we did every day after our morning sitting, the reflections on sharing blessings. It was our daily reminder that we were trying to do the pilgrimage not for ourselves, but for others. We did it in Pali, but during our time walking through the hills, Hajusuchita had started to compose an English version. His translation has since been adopted by the English monasteries, and every time I hear it now, I think of our pilgrimage. There was another river that day. We'd been for arms in a winding village called Amra, and were walking on along a small road that led eventually to Faranasi. I'd spotted the river on the map and thought it might make a good place to bathe. It might even be deep enough to swim. When we came to this river, it couldn't have been more ideal. It wasn't wide, but it was deep, clear, slow-moving, and overhung by trees. There were steps leading down to a gap in the reeds where the locals must have regularly bathed. It was mid-afternoon, and the perfect time to take a dip. We were tired, dusty and hot, and incredibly, there was absolutely no one about. I suggested we bathe, and was down the steps before Ajusatito had taken in what was happening. I stripped off to my underpants and swam out into the centre of the river and called to Ajansichita that it was lovely. He wasn't interested, though. Instead, he moved off and sat under a tree to wait for me to finish. I couldn't leave it at that, though, and after swimming a few lengths, I tried to get him to come in again. It was great. Why didn't he come in? But he remained sitting upright under his tree, and from the way he said no, I got a strong impression of disapproval. As we went on, we discussed that incident. Just that was a change from earlier in the pilgrimage. From it, I learnt a lot, although the whole event must have taken only 15 minutes. To him, my bathing had seemed irresponsible. We'd agreed that morning that we were going to walk to Varanasi and try to get there by the next day. To one with his dogged character, an impromptu swim even if it was our first opportunity for three months, was a frivolous deviation from our purpose. Talking it over, I discovered that had I told him in the morning we might have the opportunity for a swim later, it would have been different. The problem was the unexpectedness as much as anything. But that had actually been deliberate. I'd been saving it for him as a surprise. The Ox and the Dragon to him my sudden impulsive actions could be so disconcerting. He later told me that my scamper down the steps and plunge into the water reminded him of one of those goofy red setters that leave their owners despairing. Surely we could have sorted out these little difficulties, but energy was the thing. I didn't have enough of it to manage what was going on, let alone communicate it. 
So as usual, it was left to benevolent chaos. This time administered through jugglery, great brown crumbling chunks of it chomped around a campfire at night with black tea. It gave a surge of energy, as well as the childlike abandon that broke boundaries. The day after a night in a drainage ditch, having got up before the water sluiced in in the morning, we were on the road to Ramnagar, this side of the Ganges from Varanasi. A man hollered at us the familiar Kahajarahay as we lumbered along. He was the proprietor of a sugar mill and alive with it. As pilgrims to Varanasi, we must stop for a while and drink his sugar cane juice, freshly pressed. Here, he couldn't stop talking and pressed on us fist-sized balls of juggery, still warm from the pan where the juice was simmering, liking, liking, until we were reeling from eating and drinking the stuff. Even then, loading Nick with lumps of juggery and filling our canteens with litres of the juice, he followed us, ripping hard stalks of sugarcane with his teeth to give us chunks of the sweet, sappy core. So, light-headed from lack of food and high on sugar, we couldn't stop babbling into the night and the next morning and throwing up the grudges and gripes in the flow. Nick was impulsive and never consulted me. And then as soon as I started responding to local people, he'd charge in or stomp off, forcing me to break off and rush after him. Then it was me, with my judgments and condescending attitudes. Me! Jangling along with plenty of spaces and dodging the cow dung in the road, you can dump this stuff. And things felt better afterwards. There's no need to feel bad or to figure out what to do. But there was some recognition of where our journey needed to go. We suddenly understood that we were living in different worlds. What he noticed and what I noticed only coincided glancingly. And the main conduit of all the conflict was, why can't he be normal, like me? For me to read a line of Pali three times is to know it. Anybody can chant in tune, can't they? But after fifteen years, he was still having problems with reciting the refuges and precepts. My immediate reading was that he thought it was a waste of time, was putting no effort into it. So that was off-putting but then I noticed how much effort he really was putting into it. The glue of his mind, wonderfully effective when it came to reading landscapes and maps, could not stick words, no matter how much hammering and heat were applied. And when I realised what we should all know, think we know, but don't know, that this is another person, something was crossed over, and the perceptions changed. My feeling for the man, and for whatever he had to carry, deepened. India, life on the road, supporting a monk. What was he working his way through? I could try and help, and forget again. And in the course of that, I emptied a little more of myself into the way it is. When you write about this, Bunte, make sure you mention all my faults. Actually, it seems I've described my own even more accurately. But that's the humbling fact of this journey. 
We fare on in our own current, a stream that floods and saturates the world. And it's not always so grand. But any pilgrimage is not about aiming to arrive at a new world. The journey is to let go of all possible worlds. So we don't really go forwards, but deeper, as if in a torrent that cuts down, exposing the bedrock of habits, assumptions, opinions and wishes, and somehow keeps flowing on. Mm.